The story of the Bible has a beginning, and it has a middle, and it has an end. And friends, that's good news for us. Because unlike many other views of reality that are in this world today, views of reality that say that reality is not linear, but actually cyclical or circular, unlike those views, a linear view revealed to us from the God of the Bible means that we have good reason to have hope. The God of the Bible is a God who has planned his gospel story from beginning to end. He is a God who in Revelation chapter 1 is called the Alpha and the Omega. He is the A and the Z. He is moving all things forward from their beginning through their middle towards his appointed end. When all will be made well, when God will rule and reign and be seen to rule and reign in all of his creation. This is very important for us as we face suffering. Because let's be honest, in suffering, we forget the story of God in the Bible. We forget that there is a beginning, we forget that there's an end, and we just see right now our horizons are pulled in toward us, and all we know is the suffering of our present moment, and we lose perspective in it. Friends, as we come now to Lamentations chapter 5, We're going to look at this last poem of lament, and I want you to see the way that God's people align themselves to God's story in their suffering. I want to show you the way that they, in their suffering, lament on the basis of a past, on the basis of the present experience of suffering, and on the basis of a future hope in a God who will make all things well. That's our outline this morning, quite simple, just looking at lamenting in light of the past, the present, and the future. So jump in with me right away at our first point, lamenting in light of the past. And as we do, as we jump in, I want you to just know something about chapter 5 as we jump into it. Chapter 5 is a little different than some of the other chapters that have come before in a few ways, but one of the ways that I want to point out is that it is a corporate lament. No longer is it uh, the first person singular language of I that's being used, or the third person language of they, or he, or she, or it. It's the language of we. This is the community together, praying to God, lamenting to God, uh, together in light of the destruction of Jerusalem. You kind of get the picture in your mind of these returning exiles, perhaps 70 years after Jerusalem was first destroyed, maybe after this was first written, and coming together and praying and lamenting as they gazed at the temple grounds, at the rubble of the temple scattered all around. And in in, in their disorientation, in their suffering, in their pain, they call it to God. And they call it to God in verse 1 with these words, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Now, that language of look and see might be familiar to you. It was used throughout the book. Right, right now, they're calling on God to look and to see and to remember them. They're calling out to God on the basis of knowing who he is and how he's acted in the past. And asking him then, on the basis of his character and who he is and what he's done in the past, to now remember them and to act in the present. Mark Rogop, he comments on verse 1, he says this, His remember is a request for God to intervene based on his love and promises. The love and the promises that they know and they see in the story that has gone before them. 
And those lamenting in chapter 5, they know that in the past, God's people have in fact cried out to God and God has heard them, that God has remembered them in their suffering and he has acted and they're hoping that he'll do so again. I'm going to give you two examples of this. The first example is that after the rains of the great flood, as the flood waters uh, filled up this earth, as Noah languished in the ark, Genesis 8 verse 1 says this, is that God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah and all of the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Isn't that significant? He's compassionate even on the animals that are with Noah. And then God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. God remembered, he saw the plight of his people and he acted. And much later, after Israel grew to become a great nation in slavery in Egypt, we read in the second chapter of Exodus these words about the way that God saw them and remembered them. Exodus 2, verse 23 and 24. And the people of Israel, they groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. See, God is a God who acts in history. God is a God who acts in history on the basis of what he's promised beforehand. And the author of Lamentations and the people who are lamenting together with him, they know this. They're steeped in the story of the Bible. They're steeped in the narrative of what's come before them. And by beginning this prayer with the word, remember us, the author is leading the crushed people of God to remember who God is, how he has acted, and ask that he would again show them mercy. But the lament continues, of course, after verse 1, and it turns from the past to the present. As the uh, author of Lamentations leads these people in pouring out their heart corporately because of their present suffering to God. In verses 2 to 18, we see much that we have seen before in the book of Lamentations. Much of the complaint, much of the suffering, the description of sorrow. But here the author focuses in on the humiliation of losing all that God had given his people based on his promises to Abraham. See, there's a very specific losing and humiliation in losing something. If you have something and you lose it, there's humiliation, there often is. On the other hand, if you've never had something in the first place, there's no reason to be humiliated about not having it. For example, I've never had a luxury vehicle and I'm not very humiliated that I don't have one. But that might be a different experience for someone that's used to having things like luxury vehicles and having lost them. You see, for Israel, they're in this situation of having had something in the past and losing it and feeling this deep shame and humiliation and sorrow over having lost those things. I want to show you what I'm talking about. First, God had made a promise to Abraham a long time before in Genesis chapter 12 and his covenant with Abraham, the first father of the people of Israel. And he said to them that he was going to give them a homeland, that he promised them a place to live. He said, go from your country, Abraham, go from your kindred in your father's house, to the land that I will show you, the land of Canaan, which became the place for the nation of Israel. But now as they're lamenting in chapter 5, because of their sin, their rebellion against God, God's people have now lost the land that had been given to them by God. And they lament in verse 2, they say, our inheritance has been churned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. But second, God promised more in that first covenant in Genesis 12 to Abraham. 
In 12 verse 2, he had said to Abraham, he promised him, I will make you a great nation. I will multiply you, Abraham, from this family that you have here to fill up the earth, to be a multitude of people. But they lost their promise of being a multitude of people flourishing and increasing on earth and their present suffering. And they lament in verse 3, no longer are we multiplying. In fact, we've become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. Third, God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, in that same covenant, he promised him, I will, in fact, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The idea was that the surrounding nations, as they treated Israel well, they would themselves be treated well by God. And as they treated Israel poorly, they would be punished and even cursed by God because of that. And then this idea that Israel themselves were supposed to be a blessing to the world around them as they showed forth the way of life, the way of flourishing in relationship with God. But now all of that blessing has been reversed. Now, rather than enemies being punished for being uh, those who oppose Israel, it appeared that the enemies around them had won, that they were in fact being blessed for conquering Israel. And they felt very humiliated by the way that their enemies had conquered them in so many different ways, and much of this portion of this chapter focuses on the way that they are humiliated in oppression. Let me show you what I'm talking about in a few different ways. Well, first in verses 4 and 6, they lament together the way that they have been economically made dependent on their enemies. We must pay for the water we drink. Their own resources that they want to use, they have to pay their enemies to have. The wood we get must be bought. Verse 6, we have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. In order to have food enough to live on, they have to rely on old enemies. But also, notice this, they are humiliated because they used to be free, but now they are ruled by slaves. The slaves of their enemies, not just their enemies, rulers, the slaves of their enemies rule over them. Slaves rule over us. There is none <clears throat> to deliver us from their hand. There's more here still. In verse 11, they are humiliated because, humiliated because their enemies are oppressing them and they are unable to protect their most vulnerable. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. See, God's people were supposed to be a blessing to the nations around them. God was supposed to curse their enemies. But now all of that has been reversed. And there's more here still than this. You see, God had promised Abraham something else. He promised Abraham and his descendants, not only these things I've mentioned, but that also that he would be their God, and that they would be his people, that they would have a special relationship, that that relationship itself would be the focal point and the reason for their blessings. See, all of their blessings had a source. The blessings of Israel happened not just abstractly, but happened because they had a relationship with God. God, who is life, was living richly with his people and bringing that blessing to this people. And the great symbol of that blessing was the temple that God himself dwelt on earth in the midst of his people. But now they look not on the majesty of the temple in confidence, but on the rubble of the temple. 
and they mourn that God's presence itself is gone. Verse 17 and 18 say this, For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. There is no greater picture of God removing his blessings than God removing his temple. Christopher Wright, he comments on verse 18. He says this, one verse, only seven Hebrew words, but Lamentations 5.18 sums up the catastrophe of this whole book that has told the death knell of Israel's land, Israel's city, Israel's king, Israel's temple, Israel's faith, Israel itself as a covenant people of Yahweh, all collapsed, all ended, to all observers, all gone. And so far we've seen the way that in this lament, the author has led the people to call to God to remember them on the basis of the past and his actions in history. We've seen the way that now he has led them to pour out their hearts to God on the basis of the present and their suffering in the moment, to, to speak to him and to pour out their hearts to him honestly. And third, we're going to look now to see the way that he's going to turn them to turn to God in hope for the future. Look at verses 19 to 22. But you, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us. And you remain exceedingly angry with us. The first thing to notice here is the way that verse 19 starts with this, this but God moment. But you. See, verse 19 is a reality-altering declaration for the people. What had happened was that the Babylonians had torn down the temple in order to try to show the people of Israel that your God is nothing. That the gods of Babylon, the god Anu and Marduk and Ea, they ruled over Yahweh. And the people lamenting the horror of their suffering, they must have felt to some degree that God had indeed been dethroned, that the enemy nations and the enemy gods had won, and that all of God's promises of restoration that he had made through the prophets previously, that all of that was over and for nothing. And yet the author leads the people here in a prayer that would have been unthinkable to earlier peoples, acknowledging that Yahweh is still forever, that he is still eternal God sitting on his thrones, and that he is still in control even in this terrible moment. The pitiful gods Anu and Marduk and Ea have nothing to do with what they are facing in the destruction of the temple. No, God reigns forever. Even now he's on his throne, and that means... And that means the temple wasn't destroyed because any Babylonian god had won. It means that Jeremiah and the other prophets were right who prophesied that the temple was destroyed because the sovereign God had done what he said he would in the face of continued sin and rejection by his people. And as difficult as that was to admit, there's at least hope in it. Because the author has already written in Lamentations 3, verse 22, that God is a God of steadfast love and of mercy which never ceases. 
And if that's the case, then God, who is still in heaven and still reigning, who is merciful in the core of his heart towards his people, that even now there is hope that he will churn and that he will restore and that he will have mercy. So in verse 21, they call out to him, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Restore us to yourself, O Lord. There's humility in that cry. It's a deep recognition that, that in their sin, they can do nothing to save themselves. They look up to God and say, God, you must do something. Restore us. It's in your hands so that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. There's a hope that God will restore. But there's more here, isn't there? Because the second thing that I want to show you in these verses is that, is that there is a deep and a profound tension in this passage. Though these people hope in God for the future to some degree, Lamentations clearly does not end on a note of triumph. The last verse of the book says this, Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. What's going on here? Is this a hopeful ending to a book full of sorrow? Or is it a despairing ending? Is it an ending that, that still holds close the proclamation of chapter 3, verse 22, about God's faithfulness and his mercy? Or is this a different sort of ending that's kind of left that in the background and forgotten it because of the present reality of suffering? What I think is going on here is this. I think that though God's people in Lamentations 5 live in God's story that has a beginning and a middle and an end, because of their suffering, their horizons are being shrunk down. And they're ending the book knowing that, yes, God may promise to restore. God may have made promises to restore. Maybe we can call out to him to restore us. And yet, we're still in suffering. It's not over. We're still here. We're still faced with the bitterness of what's facing us. And the author will not let us miss that. He will not let us forget that they are still waiting for God to act. I think in many ways that's like us, isn't it? Because like the people who would have originally prayed this lament, we also live in a world where all wrongs are not yet made right. And like these people, we struggle at times to hold on to God in faith, to remember what he is doing in the story that has a beginning, that has a middle, and has an end in the face of our present suffering. And in our present suffering, our horizons shrink down in us. We just feel the present moment. We wonder, is God going to do something? Will he act? Is he still faithful? Or will we let suffering shrink our horizons and cause us to lose hope in this moment? Or will we trust him? Friends, as we conclude together this morning, I want to try to help you to hold on to God in faith in your own moments of present suffering. I want you to help you find some ways to orient yourselves, to grab on in hope to the past and to the future and orient yourself in the present in God's story so that you are stable, so that you have faith even in terrible suffering and awful circumstances. So I want to show you three things that we can work on to grow in having hope and faith in God's story in our suffering. First, 
We need to remember the cross. Friends, though we wait for all things to be made right, we wait knowing that God is, in fact, the God of chapter 3, verse 22. God has proven for us once and for all that he is steadfast in love because of the cross, because of the way that he has come down to earth. Who would have dreamed that God himself would suffer for human beings, for our sin, in order to bring us back into relationship with himself? Who would have dreamed that in order to defeat all of our enemies, to defeat Satan, to defeat sin, and defeat death, that God himself would come and die and be raised to life again in the person of Jesus? Who would have dreamed that in order to deal with all of our sin, God himself, the just judge, came down to earth and was judged in our place? And why did he do it? Because of his steadfast love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 to 10 in the NIV say this. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. You want to know how God proves his love? He's going to tell you. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. You want to know what love looks like? It's like this. This is love. Not that we love God, We didn't. In our sin, we turned away from him. But that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, friends, when your suffering disorients you, when your horizons shrink down and you lose perspective and you wonder if God is for you, remember the cross. He is for you. He has suffered more than you or I ever will in order to bring us his eternal life. What he has begun, he will be sure to complete. And second, in our suffering, we must orient ourselves to God's story by hoping in God's promises. You see, it is because of the cross that you can have confidence to trust in God's promises. Paul writes this in Romans 8.32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What things does he promise us? He promises us everything. And why does he promise us that? He promises it because he has already not spared his son Jesus. How will he not then also with Jesus give you everything? All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. The best is yet to come. God is a God who's committed to fixing this broken world and righting every wrong. So friends, I want you to stop with me for a second. I want you to just think about this. I want you to imagine we're supposed to, in the Bible, we're called to be people that set our hope completely on the hope to be brought to us, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13. So do that with me. Let's set our hope together. Imagine what this is going to look like. Imagine living in a world without cancer, without disease, without COVID, without oppression or injustice, without hatred or malice, without orphans or widows or families that are broken apart because of unforgiveness and bitterness. Imagine living in a body without sin, where that thing that you've struggled with for so long is just gone. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Imagine living in a world that's not polluted, a world that doesn't get warmer as the years go on and have climate problems, but a world that is made new and the corruption is gone as God works in it. Imagine being embraced by Jesus, 
looking in his eyes and knowing that he knows you. There's nothing that you can hide from him. He knows the deepest, most intimate parts of you. And he's forgiven you and he loves you. And you don't take that on faith because you see him face to face. He embraces you. Imagine dwelling in God's presence, existing in his life. As his life fills up and abounds and overflows and increases in this world until all that is of death and sin is swept away forever. See, as you live here in the present, in your suffering, friends, you need to anchor your souls to the promises of God for the future. You need to anchor your souls to the promises of God for the future. As you suffer, memorize the scriptures which speak of your hope. Pray with praise and worship and gratitude in light of what God has promised. Pray with the church in Revelation the words, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Third, the last way I want to show you that we must live orienting ourselves in God's story is that in the present, we must walk by the Spirit in relationship with Him. You see, you see, because of the cross, we've been reconciled to God. We who were separated from God because of our sin have been forgiven and brought back into relationship with him through the cross. And because of that, now God dwells within his people by his Holy Spirit. God dwells within that, within us. Let that land on you. God himself dwells in you. Christ said, Jesus promised us in John 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And he promised us in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always, no matter what happens, no matter your circumstances, I am with you to the end of the age. He is with us by his Spirit. And in our lives, sure, all wrongs are not righted. We know that. It, it's hard. But the presence of God himself is with us in our suffering. The presence of God himself is in us working more and more of his life, working to help us to know him and his love in a greater and greater way, drawing us into the richness of the relationship of life, the homeland that we long for as we dwell with him and live with him and know his comfort in our suffering. God himself is with us. Friends, honestly, this last year, I've begun to learn this to a new degree because this last year has been difficult and God often uses the hardships in our lives to show us how much we need him, how much we need to walk by his life, to take our hands off of the things that will not bring us life, to cause us to hope and to trust in him. And as I've suffered a little bit this year, I've come to realize that there's nothing in my life, nothing in this world that compares to walking with God by his spirit. Not my family, not my job, not the things that I love in my life. None of that compares with knowing him. Because of my suffering, I've begun to feel like I can call out with the psalmist the words that he cries when he says, when can I go and meet with God? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. We don't have all of our questions answered, do we? We have something far better. We have the presence of God with us 
as we wait for the fulfillment of all that he's promised. So friends, in your suffering, are you striving to walk with him? Are you seeking his face? He has so much more for you than what you have now. Seek him. Pursue him in prayer. Pursue him in the word of God. Friends, as you remember the love of God for you through the cross, and as you set your hope on his promises for you in the future, and as you walk with him in the present, you will endure in faith. You will be oriented in his story that has a past, that has a present, that has a glorious future. You will be secure as you hang on to him in hope. Friends, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he will finish all that he has started. So take courage. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we want to know more of you. In our suffering, in this world, we want to know more of your life. Would you give us great hope in you? In Jesus' name, amen.